All right, Ecclesiastes. Started a new series last week, if you weren't able to be with us. We do have options online, whether it's podcasts. Some of you are watching online right now, but you can follow that later if you're not able to be here one Sunday. But we started Ecclesiastes um, last week. Again, a wildly popular book. Um, warm fuzzies for sure. We're going to be walking through this book throughout the fall coming up. And, and Solomon does something pretty uh, interesting for us. For one, he throws a wet blanket on our expectations of life, and, and it's for our good. Uh, secondly, there, you know, there's things that we thought we knew about the world uh, and what it promises to us, things we thought we knew about life, things we thought we knew about God. And Solomon approaches us, and he challenges us, and he's going to put those expectations on trial and say, regarding your expectations of life and the world and God, are those things actually true? And what he's doing is he's humanizing the struggles that we feel and helping us to see that the formulas under the sun will simply not provide what they promise. And so that's where we are. That's where we're going to be. We're in Ecclesiastes 2. I've been looking forward to this section in particular um, as we've been gearing up for this, um, Solomon's about to do some pretty crazy things, and we're about to uh, go on a, little, on a little ride with Solomon. He's going to teach us a few things about life. You guys ready for it? Mm-hmm. Let's do it. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 1, Solomon says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was vanity. Stop here. Solomon is going to use his resources, and he's going to use his wealth. And again, he's got a lot of it. We'll talk more about that in a second. To explore, to test, to search, and to see if there is something under the sun that will bring a soul-level satisfaction. So he's going to take all of his resources and all of his wealth, and he's going to use them as a means to try to test the world and examine, is there something under the sun that will bring a soul-level satisfaction? So he begins this search, again, unthinkable amount of money, as close to infinite as we can get under the sun. He's there with these resources. Again, he's beyond us. Educationally, he came out of the womb with mentors and teachers and trainers. He was educated well beyond any of us. He has more power than we'll ever dream to have, more access to to wealth than we would ever dream of. Um, The major point I want to hit over and over again is that he's beyond us. Again, last week, Bill Gates, his peak net worth, $144 billion. It's pretty good. Not mad about it if I'm him. Elon Musk, a little more, peak net worth, $190 billion. Henry Ford, rest in peace, peak net worth is closer to $200 billion. And lastly, Jeff Bezos, so far, peak net worth was $204 billion. Solomon, 10x, Jeff Bezos, like he is beyond us. He's beyond Jeff Bezos, and he's going to use those resources. He's going to use that wealth to leverage it on this experiment we're about to go it reminds me of It's a Wonderful Life. We're getting closer to being able to watch together It's a Wonderful Life. You know what I'm saying? It's getting closer. Um, George Bailey and his family run a savings and loan company in this small town in New York, if you remember. Um, and they provided fair and reasonable mortgage rates to people. Um, and so he has this epiphany throughout the story. And again, you got to watch it. Um, but he says, I couldn't face being cooped up for the rest of my life in a shabby little office. He felt this, this urge, this desire, this awakening within him, in him. I, I want to do something uh, big and something important. 
So it's kind of two conclusions that he has that we have to consider in this movie. George has these two assumptions he's making. One is that there is somewhere on this rock called earth where he will gain something he can't find in that moment. There's an assumption that if I was somewhere else doing something different, then I could be able to find something that he can't find in that moment. Grass is greener on the other side. We all feel it. And the second assumption he's making is that once he finds that thing on this rock called earth, that he will be satisfied. He will become a happy man who is content, honored, fulfilled, no longer restless within himself or the world. And that is the experiment that Solomon is going to take us on. Is that true? Is what George is assuming, is that true? He's going to put it on trial for us. He's going to leverage his resources to uh, methodically explore everything under the sun and see if it's possible to quench our soul-satisfying desires. So the way he's going to do this is kind of threefold. He's going to go through kind of teens and 20s and the life cycle that happens there. He's going to enter into the, the 30s through 50s and the life cycle that we have there. And then he's going on the back end, the life cycle of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And he's going to uh, kind of examine each one of these stages of life. Verse 2. Instead of laughter... It is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. And so he begins this uh, life cycle, and this life cycle would be what we would call partying, he kind of explores this, this desire to kind of uh, uh, consume alcohol, kind of take in these desires of partying. Alcohol is a numbing mechanism. It can be a numbing mechanism to avoid pain and reality. And there's debate here on did he become a drunk or did he become a connoisseur? And what I find as we look at this text is true. In verse 3, he says, my heart's still guiding me with wisdom. And so he's exploring wine, and it appears he might be going down more of the path of a connoisseur, exploring a a small yay of sorts. And so he's searching for the joys and pleasure of wine. He threw some crazy parties. This guy, Solomon, we're going to learn a little bit more about that. He, he needed, uh, in, in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 22 and following, we learn a little bit about what he needed for the types of parties he had. Again, beyond us. Uh, verse uh, 22 of chapter 4. Let's read. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores. We have no idea what that means, and I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle. It's organic cattle. He, he had it. He had it before we did. A hundred sheep, besides deer, gazelles, uh, roebucks, and fattened fowl, uh, for he had dominion over all the region, rest of the, uh, west of the Euphrates, from Tisphus to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates. And he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all of Solomon's days. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots, 12,000 horsemen, and those officers supplied provision for King Solomon. For all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month, 
They let nothing be lacking. So these types of, this amount of food that he had could feed 15 to 20,000 people. Like he threw crazy parties. He would mock your little bring your own meat party, okay? Like he threw crazy parties night after night after night after night. History tells us, systematically throwing some of the largest parties the world has ever seen. Food and drink overflowing. He's, he gets tired, though, of waking up finding a new tattoo on himself. You know what I mean? Like, he gets to that point of his time in this stage of life, and he's left empty. He's left empty, so he moves on to make something of himself. So he goes from this, these, uh, this age 20s, just kind of trying to figure out, just kind of living frivolously without the kind of a focus, and then he kind of hones in, and he wants to make something of himself. And we read of that in verse 4. It says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. We'll stop there. So this life cycle is, is, is making, uh, making something of himself. He begins to build this life that we now know of him. He begins to make stuff. He begins to make something of himself. And he spent years building these extravagant homes and houses for himself and for his wives and his concubines. No one built more than Solomon built. No one. He's beyond us. In 1 Kings chapter 7, we'll read a few verses to get a little more of this context. 1 Kings 7, verse 1, it says, Solomon was building his own house 13 years. Again, context, it took seven years for him to build the temple of God and 13 years for him to build his own set of houses. And he finished his entire house. He built the house of the Feast of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits, and its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits, and it was built on four rows of cedar pillars. Cedar's like legit money. Uh, back in the day and today, with cedar beams on the pillars, and it was covered with cedar uh, above the chambers that were on the 45 pillars, 15 in each row. Uh, you're tracking with me here. There were window frames in three rows and window opposite uh, window in three tiers. All the doorways and windows had square frames, of course, and window was opposite window in three tiers. And he made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits and its breadth 30 cubits. There was a porch in front with pillars and a canopy in front of them. And he made the hall of the throne where he was to pronounce judgment, even the hall of judgment. It was finished with cedar from Florida rafters. His own house where he was to dwell in the other court back of the hall was of like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken in marriage. Of course, he had 700 wives. All, all of these were made of costly stones, cut according to measure, so, uh, sawed with saws, back and front, even from the foundation to the uh, coping, and from the outside of the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, huge stones, stones of eight and ten cubits, and above were costly stones cut according to measurement in cedar. The great court had three courses of cut stone all around and a course of cedar beams. So had the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the house. 
Solomon went loco, okay? Like he just was building and building and building and using the nicest and finest things to do so. There's a guy named Adrian Veer Hyage. Uh, sorry, I thought I had the name this morning and then I'm in front of you guys and here we are. Uh, he had a journal uh, about uh, Ecclesiastes and it called Paradise Retired. And he says this about this passage. This passage can be read as referring to a failed attempt on part of Solomon at creating something like a paradise. Solomon's trying to create a paradise on earth. He's trying to create the biggest, most vast thing in this experiment to try to see if building something, making a name for himself, would do something to his soul. Solomon's doing this. So this building that we see, we see twice in this text that he says myself twice. And so this isn't for community gains. This is to see in this experiment if he can find pleasure he built big. Again, like I said, seven years for the temple, 14 years for his house. Um, and he's building to make a name for himself. He's seeking to make a name for himself. He's seeking to uh, secure permanence in this world. Maybe this will quench. Maybe this will satisfy. And so he gets his hands really dirty. And the text goes on, as we just read. And, and he begins to get calloused hands. And he begins to get dirt under his fingernails. And he begins to... to to build uh, not just a house, but forest. We build gardens. He builds forests. He has this garden paradise. In Metro Atlanta, we have some sizable uh, parks. We have the Botanical Gardens, about 30 acres. We have uh, Swift Cantrell Park, which is 42 acres. Piedmont Park is 185 acres, but none of these have anything on Solomon. Not parks, forests. He goes well beyond what we can comprehend. In the southwest of Jerusalem, you'll find these things called the pools of pools of Solomon. And so he built these. These were three massive reservoirs. And so there were there were these um, these underground tunnels that would feed these pools. Again, this is three thousand years ago, and he builds these to to uh, 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 provide water for his forests that he builds. He builds and he builds. And he's seeking to make something of himself. And we can jump on this treadmill too, right? We can feel the same draw. We don't have the cash he has. We don't have the resources we have. We ain't going to make forests. We might make a little eight by four garden and be happy about it and like go to bed like satisfied for a second. But man, he goes all the way and we can feel the same draw to make a name for ourselves, to make something of ourselves. If I could just make a name for myself, the, the lie is that I, uh, I will then f- find satisfaction in my soul. We try to prove ourselves with something that we do. We try to own something or attain something that says that we are something. Trying to, to be somebody and have influence, to be noticed. Maybe trying to compete with the Joneses. But man, as Theodore Roosevelt once said, comparison becomes the thief of our joy. And it's so true. We begin to enter into this treadmill that we naturally enter into. Like, that's the stream of this world, entering into this, this rhythm that we have to compete with everybody else. We have to prove ourselves. This is a sad human pursuit that leads to a dead end every time. We lay our head on the pillow and we feel empty. And Solomon begins to communicate the dead end of that. But the experiment isn't over. Verse 7 I bought male and female slaves. 
And I had slaves who were born in my house. And I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasures of kings and provinces. Um, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delights of the sons of men. So we go from the life cycle of kind of young 20s to building our careers and our mid 20s and 30s and 40s, even 50s. And then on the back end, we now are entering into this new life cycle. And this life cycle is of wealth and ease and comfort. He wants to enjoy what he has now built. See, the the storyline that's being built, it's hedonism on the back end of his life. And so it says slaves or servants. And so this is different than maybe even our own history as a country. This is similar to what Israel would do with servants, where you'd kind of have a six-year term and then you'd be set free on the seventh year. And so he had people doing everything for him. He woke up late. Every meal was cooked to his liking at the proper uh, meat temperature. He would likely get bathed. I mean, his hands got soft. Okay, he went from like building with cedar and he's got splinters in his hands. He's got blisters on blisters on blisters. And now his hands get soft because he's got everybody doing things for him. It's the extreme extent of ease and wealth and comfort. He sits back and enjoys his riches. He had it all. Cattle ranches, uh, horse ranches. He had Spotify before Spotify was a twinkle in his mother's eye. Okay, so for us, you know, we, he has bands that come into his palace. For us, we, we say, hey, Siri, hey, Alexa, play Coldplay Fix You, right? And so it plays it. For Solomon, he says, hey, Chris Martin from Coldplay, who I now bought, will you play that little ditty Fix You? Like, he's got it live. This is what he's doing in his palace. We've got to enter into the life that he now has before us. He's beyond us. He had wealth that we simply can't fathom. $2.2 trillion dollars his net worth. Endless sensual pleasures. We won't go too far here, but he had 700 wives. I mean, that's, that's crazy. And it's against God's design. It's foolish. He had 300 concubines, which were prostitutes. The point is that Solomon experienced uninhibited sexual experiences. I don't, I don't mean to be sarcastic here. He had the original Playboy Mansion. Like, that, that was where he was. Like, he had at his disposal uninhibited sexual pleasure. And today, our culture is so confused sexually. Access to porn and information, hyper-individualistic, but even that didn't match what Solomon had. This was part of his demise as you read his story. But in this experience, he went all the way holding nothing back to test pleasure, to see if sex, if money, if ease would quench or satisfy at a soul level. So we go through these life cycles of young 20s partying. We go through this cycle of building, making a name for himself. We go through this cycle of of enjoying what he's now built. And we read verse 9. Now I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. He said that twice in this section to to stay focused on the fact that he's doing this for the sake of gaining wisdom. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all 
my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Toil and gain could be used synonymously. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had experienced in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and the striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So he held nothing back. That's the point of this section. Everything that his eyes desired, he got. Whatever he wanted, he got for himself. He did it all, held nothing back. No restraint, no self-denial, exploring fully the delights of wine and women and song and architecture and gardening. Asking, is there anything that can satisfy this thing in my soul? See, the gift of the wisdom literature section that we have in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job, among others, is that we don't need to repeat this folly. We don't need to go down the same path that Solomon went down. We can actually learn from Solomon and what he provides to us. He did better than what you can do, celebrated more than what you'll ever be able to do. And in the end, after the hard work, there was no lasting impact, no gain worth noting. It wasn't worth it, momentary, fleeting. And all of this was striving after the wind. Nothing was gained. All the fantasies achieved, but back in the same rut. And so he sits before us as a wise mentor. And he says it didn't, doesn't promise. The promises of the world don't fulfill what they say. They always leave a hole. This world promises things that under the sun it cannot fulfill. And this is the problem of pleasure. The problem of pleasure is that it promises things that it simply cannot fulfill. The Bible teaches us a lot about pleasure. And two things to note about pleasure in particular. One is that God created pleasure. He's not a killjoy. God created pleasure. He created pleasure. He created things like our palate, that we can taste things. Unless you have COVID, and then you can't. But then hopefully it goes away, and then you can again. But he created our palate to taste things. Why would God give us a palate to enjoy meat and wine and good things? It's not a killjoy. He created parts of our body designed for pleasure. God created those things. Those things didn't enter in after the fall. God never designed pleasure. Secondly, he never designed pleasure to be an end, but a means to an end. See, pleasure isn't the problem. Our dilemma is assuming that our pursuit of pleasure and happiness will give it what, give us what it cannot give us. That's our dilemma, is that we put pressure upon pleasure and things of this world to give us what our soul cannot receive from them because it cannot fulfill those things. See, when sin entered the world and Eden was fractured because of it, we exchanged God for his creation. That's what happened in the fall. We exchanged God and we said, we want your creation. We don't want you as creator. And we now settle for fleeting pleasures from creation that are supposed to point us to God. See, the point of pleasure was to point us back to God. St. Augustine summarizes this well. He says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. We cannot find in this world what it promises that it can give us. See, good pleasure is like a good watermelon. I know we're coming out of summer, but man, a good watermelon. You know what I mean? Like you knock it at Publix and it sounds right and so you bring it home. 
and then you cut it open. This is the seedless kind, which is always the good kind, though it can't reproduce, and so there's a problem there. But, but you open it up, and you take a bite. It's 100 degrees. That's so humid. You're like covered, third shirt of the day, just so sweaty. But you take that bite of that watermelon, and it's just so delicious, right? So like that's the intended design of a good watermelon. Good pleasure is like a good watermelon. Good pleasure is like a good watermelon. Used within its design, it's wonderful. But man, you use a watermelon for a baseball, it splatters and makes a mess, right? And it probably hurts your wrist when you hit it. That that bounce back is going to hurt even your wrist if you have uh, fragile wrists. Um, Used for baseball, it's a hot mess. If we want to enjoy a watermelon, we have to treat it according to its intended purpose. Same with pleasure. If we use pleasure in the way that God designed pleasure to be used, it can be for our good and point us to worship a creator who is not a killjoy, but who provides good things for its children. But if we take it and we make an idol of it and we allow it to become an in and of itself, it will never give us what it was designed to give us. So C.S. Lewis summarizes it like this. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing. I submit that this notion was crept in from Kant, one uh, virtuous to stay committed than love her with my heart. And the Stoics, and there is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblemishing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires, this is the main point, that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We drink. No, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The point of pleasure was to point us back to God. When you think about your 20s, some of you are in your 20s. Some of you are like, whoa, that's a long time ago. (laughs) But the idea is this. If I get X... If I get X, I'm going to be happy. So in our 20s, those things are if I finish school, if I just get that job, if I can get married, if I can have kids, then man, I would be so happy. And if you meet those goals, new goals come. And so you enter in, uh, because what you thought those goals would give you just don't give you what you thought. So on repeat, The same cycle exists in your 30s, in your 40s, in your 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you're dead. Like that's that's how this thing progresses. We end this treadmill, this cycle over and over again. If I just got this, then I would feel that. And it doesn't. So we just put something else in front, something else in front, another carrot in front, another carrot in front, and it doesn't provide what it promises it will. And that's what Solomon's communicating to us. What we need isn't more of what we have. This is the point of Ecclesiastes. Don't spend your life chasing your tail, only to die on the treadmill. What is under this sun can't give you what it promises to give you. And that's why this gift of the sixth sense we talked about last week is so significant, entering into this space of faith, And seeing that there's something beyond the sun that God 
has offered to us. I'll close with a story and an invitation. In John 4, the Gospel of John chapter 4, we meet a woman. She's broken by this crooked world, a seeker of pleasure and broken because of it. She had had four husbands and now has been divorced four times. She's now working on her fifth relationship. And it's in that moment that she goes midday to a well, and there's a lot of meaning in that because she's now an outcast to society because of both her divorce and her uh, ethnic background. And so she goes midday, the hottest part of the day, where nobody is there at this well to get water for herself. And Jesus, in his ridiculous kindness, plans to meet her at this well. And so he shows up to her and he has a conversation with her and he begins to ask her questions that she, he shouldn't know the answers to. He says, where's your husband? He knows exactly what's happened in her life. And he begins to ask some specific questions and it culminates in him inviting her to find a soul-quenching satisfaction, not in another relationship, not in water, but in the living water that he offers to us. So the invitation to us is clear. What we are offered is an alternative to this world, an invitation to experience meaning and joy. So you hear these words from Isaiah in Isaiah 55 as we close. Isaiah says this, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. And then in verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. You can't buy this with money. You can't buy what God offers to you with money, which is why we are all put on the same playing field. We all only can buy this, not with money, but with faith. That's how we buy. We buy this offer by trusting that it satisfies, trusting that it nourishes, trusting that it will give us something that this world cannot give us, which means that in It's a Wonderful Life, George was wrong. There is not a place under the sun that you can find that thing. Friends, those that are drawn to the grass being greener on the other side, it's not. It's brown. The grass is brown here, and it's brown there. That's what Solomon would tell us. And also, to what George is saying, we will remain restless all of our days if we seek for rest under the sun. We will live our lives restless and agitated if we're looking for what the world cannot give us under the sun. In this experiment, Solomon holds nothing back and finds that there is only one thing worth pursuing. So as we close, man, for some of you, you hear this and you, maybe you haven't heard this version of what God offers to you. And you're like, man, I want that. I want you to know that you can have that. By grace, apart from your life and your history, by faith and trusting in Jesus, you can have what is offered to us here. And I want to invite you to that. That's what you want. Secondly, for, for others of you, maybe, maybe you, uh, you gather and you remember that you're just man, chasing your tail. 
And God in his kindness is saying, there's a better way. Don't spend your life trying to build a name for yourself. It's only going to lead to a dead end. Like embrace wisdom. Embrace the alternative, better option. It doesn't mean you don't work again. Like I said last week, it doesn't mean that you now just go home and, and put on that cutoff shirt and just eat Doritos all day. We're offered to work, right? Like that is a part of the storyline for us, but not as an end in itself, but a means to please God. And for some of you, you need to be reminded to stop settling for mud pies and to feast by faith. And for others of you, you are just so religiously focused, but you've missed the point. You're doing all the right things, but your heart is, is in the wrong position. It's like the older brother in the prodigal son story, where you find yourself doing all the right things. The father is present right here, but you're not realizing it, and you're not enjoying him. You're just uh, enjoying the, the, you're not enjoying, but you're just methodically doing the right things. And he's saying, there's a, a, an offer to you. Everything I have is yours. Like, come to me. Don't just come to the, the stuff, the religious duties. Come to me. Man, there's an offer for all of us this morning in this text. There's a better alternative way. You can live in the experiment and just repeat the same thing Solomon did with a more boring life. Or you can find the joy that Jesus offers to you. This is, what, this is what Solomon teaches us this morning. This is what Ecclesiastes 2 tells us. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. No cash, just faith. Faith and trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, for those who feel stirred or hungry, man, are just awakened to desire this. Lord, I pray that you would cause growth in their hearts. Lord, I pray that you would stir to more deeply know and love you, Lord. For those of us who, man, are just eating mud pies, settling for far less than what you offer. Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage to trust you. For those of us who are just religiously doing the thing, apart from joy, apart from worship, apart of love for you, Lord, draw us back to our first love. Lord, move among us. Lord, we thank you for this book, and as it's challenging as it might be, it's a lifeline of hope for us. Give us eyes to see. In Jesus' name, amen.